We've been in Ephesians 3 now for three weeks. We've walked through those first six verses pretty closely. We've talked a lot about the mystery. And I, I, I wanna, I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of sum this up for us, since we do have new people here with us today, to kind of bring us all to the same place. He starts out in verse 1 identifying himself as a prisoner. And that's so significant. It's going to impact the way he prays for the church. This identification as a prisoner of Christ, not a prisoner of Rome. Not a prisoner of Rome. A prisoner of Christ. Really gives a variation, a shade, a color to his life. Paul viewed his suffering not as something to be dreaded, not as something to be avoided. He saw it as a necessary step in the revealing of the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life. He saw his life as a living drama, if you want to call it, of the gospel. Everything, everything in Paul's life centered around the gospel. It was never about comfort. It was never about easy. It was never about fame. It was never about uh, his own plans or intentions. Everything in his life was based, centered on, constructed around the glory of God. And suffering was one part of this glory. That God would fill up the sufferings of Christ for those who were not present at His suffering. That they would see Paul suffer and say, this Jesus is real. So he called himself a prisoner. I'm in, I'm in prison. I'm in jail. Sure, under lock and key and Roman guards. But I, first and foremost, am a prisoner of Christ. I am constrained. I am I am tied to this message that I'm preaching. It is me, and now, by God's grace, I am the message. That's really how significant he sees it. And that guides the rest of the passage. This understanding of the mystery really rolls out of that theology of suffering and of being a prisoner of Christ. He's assumed a special place in the plan of God. Not by his own power, but as you notice in verse 2, by the grace that was given to him by God. He is not like all other men in his calling. Paul is a very specific, particular, important piece in the plan. But, as he emphasizes this special calling, we skip down into today's passage and we see in verse 8 that he doesn't exalt himself. It's not that Paul's better than everyone else. It's that God has called Paul by his grace to be an apostle preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and to the church at large, spreading the message. But I'm not exalted. I'm the least of all the saints. We'll get there in just a moment. So we see these ideas unfolding. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I've assumed a great stewardship, a responsibility, an administration, a a, a call from God through His grace. And what is the call? To make known the mystery that was revealed to Him Again, he's emphasizing God's work through the Spirit. It was revealed to him by God. When? Beginning at the road of Damascus, the experience he had in seeing the living, breathing, moving Christ physically on the road to Damascus, and then continuing through that for about three years after that where he's trained and prepared by Christ for the ministry, as he teaches us in Galatians chapter 2, and preparing to launch the ministry and and a public ministry proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. So that's, that's his specific place. That's his specific plan God has given to him. This mystery. And that becomes really uh, the, the, then the crux of the passage. What is the mystery? 
What is the mystery? How do we understand it? How do we apply it? I want to emphasize it to you again. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 1 through 7, that all people who are being saved, that's people in the Old Covenant and people in the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's people who are Jewish. That's people who are Gentile. That's people who are on all the face of the earth. All means all. Anyone who's being saved is being saved by Christ alone. By Christ alone. They're being brought into a family. They're being brought into a kingdom. They're being brought into a body known as the church. And that's happening by Christ alone. Whether it was prior to Christ coming in the flesh or since He has come, everyone is joined in Christ. Okay? That's the mystery that before the, rev- the full revelation through the, through the work of the Spirit in the apostles and the prophets wasn't fully understood. It was mysterious. It was shadowy. And remember, the word mysterion simply means an open secret. This is not some ritual cult. This is not, hey, we got all the answers and we're hiding it from everyone else. Okay, that's not what's going on here. God was proclaiming loudly this mystery. But the world was not understanding or perceiving it. It was being prepared. The world was being prepared for Christ. We know that. Christ coming in the perfect time. At the right time. In the right place. In the right setting. Historically. So that the mystery could be displayed. Okay? And so we see that there's a lot wrapped up here. And and before we jump off into verses 8 through 10, 7 through 10, I want us to look back just a little further to set a setting. What he's going to ultimately say in the end of this paragraph, prior to his prayer, is that the church is the manifold, the manifold, the beautiful, the, 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 the colorful, the word literally means colorful, picture of God's redemption. The church is that. That's the church. It's colorful. It's, it's broad. It's big. It's universal. It's cosmic, this church that Christ is redeeming. But we need to know how did this thing, how did this begin? And I want us to look back into verses 4 through 10 of chapter 1. We, uh, we normally follow a pattern here of preaching that goes successively through passages of Scripture. And uh, some might ask, why? Why not topical? Why not bounce here or there? Because we believe it best to, to teach building one on another truth and reviewing that so that it's always walking through your mind as you go through life. And uh, it also keeps me from just preaching what I like to preach. It also keeps me from skipping subjects that need to be preached on. And it keeps me from beating you up about the things that I don't like about you. And so it's a good governor. It's a good guide, right? But we've taught Ephesians 1. But I want to look back. Now that we know what I just said about the church, keep that in mind. It's the manifold. It's the colorful. It's the wide. It's the universal, the cosmic plan of God bringing men into Christ and through Christ into His kingdom, His church, His family. Look back at Ephesians 1. How did this begin? And this becomes a great question. Well, in verse 4 he says, Even as God chose us in Him... Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, there's the word mystery, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. What is the mystery? As a, The most general way to say it, we said it last week, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so that's the most broad statement of the mystery. And he becomes more specific in chapter 3 to say the church is the mystery being revealed. And, and so... Why do I read that paragraph? Because I think we've lost sight of it in our day, even in our churches. We've lost sight of this fact. And this is the fact. Before God created anything, He chose to save the elect. Them not being created, He chose them. And to reprobate or pass over those who are not elect. He then moved from that, logically we would say, but in real time we don't see a difference here in God. But in logic, in understanding, trying to understand this mystery, it's so important we keep this in mind. The election of some sinful men to salvation comes first. And He elects to save them in Christ. That's His plan of redemption. Laid out prior to creation. Prior to the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Okay, second... The decree then, the decree, the command is applied to Christ's redemptive benefit. The second step is that he says, the first step is, I choose to save the elect. The second step is, I choose to save them in Christ. Okay? Third, this redemption is then determined to happen by the work of Christ on the cross. And finally, the decree comes forth that there is fallen men. And then he creates. Now, it's somewhat controversial. It's controversial even among my friends, okay? So I don't, I don't stand here to profess to you that this is all simple, easy. But it is, if you step back, the only way... A, God is who He claims to be in Scripture. And that is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. If we invert these, if we change it, we say God created, then men fell, then God decided to save somebody, then God decided how He would save, then God applied the salvation, then God is reacting to fallenness, not superintending directing, covering, moving His plan forward. If we reverse the order, as some would like to do, but the Scriptures keep us from it, just one verse. You say, how can you get that? One verse. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You either got to believe He chose us before the foundation of the world or you don't believe Ephesians 1.4. There's no other way around it. It's that plain. And the sad fact is... That when we reject that, we lose the mystery. 
We lose the attractiveness and we become nothing but peddlers selling God as the next best solution to your bad life. And Paul rejects that. He says, I'm not selling God. I'm not selling the gospel. Some people do, I don't. Paul was about proclaiming this great truth which God set forward before the time began. This plan. That was his call. And he did it till he died. And the church should then pick up that, and that's what the church has done, and preach this message till Christ come again. And in doing it, we're going to see he, God, works to save dead men. That's a beautiful truth. We should never hide from it. We should never duck try to excuse away God, try to make excuses, try to make Him look different than He is. God is God. And He has laid this out for us. So, that as a backdrop to Ephesians 3 and the church, we see that He chose out of all sinful men to save some. Romans 9, out of the same lump, He made vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. Same same principle, Paul teaching again in that passage. So, he moved from that logically, we would say, chronologically, though, I want to back up now and say, one of my favorite pastors teaches it this way. I think he does a good job of capturing it. God has a universal canvas, which he's painting his plan. The plan that I've just described to you is in God's mind. It is not projected forward before time begins. It's in his mind. It's an architectural blueprint for how he will act in the world. But when God goes to work with the brush of the painter, he then unveils that plan one stroke at a time. It doesn't all just poof onto the canvas. So we get this history that's moving about. It doesn't all happen at once for us. There is a a succession of revelation that happens in the Scripture. So much so that Adam, though he knew the gospel, the promise of God, did not know the fullness of how that would be done. He trusted God by faith. Noah trusted God by faith. Abraham trusted God by faith. Moses trusted God by faith. They didn't fully understand, but each step God took in painting this tapestry of the redemption of all things in Christ, they step one step closer to the reality. And then Christ came. The fullness of the image of God. And there's no greater revelation. There's no other revelation needed. There's no addendum to that. He, he has fully revealed now this mystery. And we are to now preach this mystery. Teach this mystery. So, we have, I say all this to put a perspective in the awesome priority that God places on the work of redemption. He prioritizes redemption. It's not an afterthought for God. It's not like He says, oh, well, I created, I thought I did a good thing, I said it was good, and then man messed it up. Now what do I do? No. Before He created, before He created, He said, I will redeem. And then He set about His plan of redemption. So it's to place the awesome priority on redemption. And by placing priority on redemption, we're placing, placing priority on the life of Jesus Christ, which is what the Scripture does. If Christ doesn't come, there is no redemption. There's no plan B. 
There's no back up and start over for God. He says, I have an objective. It's to redeem all things in heaven and earth through Christ. Second step, Christ then must be central to this plan and he must be the benefit for the elect sinner. He must be the benefit. Not something I've done, but something he has done, which is the work on the cross, which is then followed up by the fall and then creation. Logical again. Okay? Now, let's, let's turn to the passage. We kind of got a backdrop. This is the scheme. This is how God works from his blueprint. All right? But now let's look at it fall out as a painting, as this beautiful painting. I want to make four points out of the verses 7 through 10. God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people as his missionaries. This is his plan. He's going to save men. But he uses ordinary people to be missionaries. We see this as the fact that God, in verse 8, through Paul says, listen, Let's back up to seven. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. So God has given him a gift, and it comes from His grace, and it's the ministry to preach the gospel, which he received from the Spirit. But look what he says. To me, the least of all the apostles? No. That's not what he says. To me, the least of all the saints. Now, some have said that's false humility. And I would say it's a right view of who we are and who God is. Paul carried this throughout time. He, in in Corinthians, says to them he's the one apostle born out of time, the least to be considered among the apostles. He even develops a little further by in Timothy. When he's writing to Timothy in his first letter, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. But here it's most eloquently put. Paul never got over the fact that he hunted Christians like dogs. He hated Christ. He hated the church. And he was a rebel against God's plan of redemption. He never got over it. He never saw himself as excused. I was only doing what people told me was right. I'm not as bad as that guy. He said, I'm the least of all the saints. If God was going to choose someone to preach this glorious mystery, why choose me? I don't deserve this. So many ministers in our day, and I have to be careful of it, think it's our right, our right to be pastors and to preach and to teach. And we elevate our giftedness to a point to where We intimidate people and say, no one else can do it as good as me. That's why I do it. And we need to revert back as pastors and as people to the view of, I'm the least of all the saints. If God wanted to paint a good picture, He wouldn't use a brush like me. I'm awful. I'm a sinner. I'm not only a sinner in the past, I'm a sinner today. And if not for the grace of God, I would fall into hell this moment. But by His grace, I live. And he presents his message through me. What a message of you. God uses ordinary people. See, so many of you right now are thinking, I'm not Paul. I, I, I'm, I'm just not capable like Paul. I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not as smart as Paul. I'm not as 
quick with my tongue as Paul. I'm not as trained as Paul. I don't know the Bible as well as Paul. I don't have what Paul had. Let me tell you again. He uses you, ordinary people, to do His work of redemption in this world. We should never lose sight of that. So whether you work as a carpenter or whether you work as a pastor, whether you serve as a garbage collector or whether you are a a, a high prince in a high place, whether you are the most, uh, you know, irresponsible in some ways, uh, sinful in your past, prostitute, drug dealer, pornographer, and yet when God saves you, He says, now I'll preach the message through you. You say, the brush is dirty. That's okay. It doesn't have, the brush is not the point. How many of you would go to a great painter and, and want to examine his brushes? You want to look at what he's doing. And so God has designed the plan that ordinary people like you and like me go into the real world and preach this mysterious truth that God chose to save wretches like me and like you. Come to Jesus. It's the only way of salvation. And He chose to do it that way so that as He makes His strokes, no one gawks at the brush like, oh, look at how beautiful that brush is. Now they say, look at that magnificent revelation of the beauty of God. I couldn't make a color like that. I couldn't make a picture like that. And, and we're, we're meaningless. We see it in John the Baptist. John came on the scene the brightest of his day, the brightest shining star. And yet when Jesus came, what did he say? I'm not worthy to unloose the sandal strap. He must increase and I must decrease. He viewed himself as nothing but a brush in the hand of the painter. Painting this beautiful picture of redemption. Bringing the message of the mystery of how all things would happen through Christ. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He never got over the fact that he was the least of the saints. He never elevated himself as a chief apostle. That's a sin we make. That's a a mistake we make. So, one of the greatest... One of the greatest facts that I can press on your mind is never, ever shy away from the gospel, preaching the gospel in any situation. And surely don't use the excuse, I'm not good enough, or I'm not smart enough, or I'm not learned enough. Let's have the attitude of Paul. Let's have the attitude of John the Baptist. Hey, when you're at work tomorrow, how about the attitude of the man born blind and healed by Christ? How were you healed? What was his name? I don't know. I mean, he's that ignorant. I don't, I don't know. All I know is I was blind. Now I see. And then when he was revealed who he was, who Jesus was, he gets himself kicked out because he goes back and tells them. Jesus did it. And Jesus is the Son of God. And his own family disowns him. So be more like him. Be more like him. Don't worry so much about do I have A, B, C, D right as much as do you have the right man, the right God, the right person, Jesus Christ. God works through a series of things in a lot of times, a series of things. I think about 
the man across the street who came to Christ a few years ago and now this week sharing with me that he's sharing with this lady next door to us who's older and, and, and reaching the end of his life. And his thing was, he said, I don't, I don't know if I said the right things. I said, you probably didn't. It's okay. But you magnified Jesus to her. And God will do His work. You're being obedient. Now, is that an excuse to be lazy? No. We don't see laziness in Paul. Paul doesn't say, well, I'm the least of all, so I don't have to, do, I don't have to, to study, I don't have to learn. No. No, it's just that you'll never get a graduate degree in evangelism before you start winning souls to Christ. You won't ever. If you wait for that, you'll never get there. There'll always be one more thing i got to know. So God uses ordinary people to be missionaries for Him. God, secondly, designed that we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. How will He use us as missionaries? Preachers. Not just preachers in the pulpit, but preachers, witnesses, all of you who are in Christ. But I can't step away from the fact that there is a priority in preaching. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8, second part. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light, bring enlightenment, explain in such a way as they will see the light of Christ for everyone what was hidden in this plan, this mysterious plan from ages gone by. So his, his priority on preaching is there. And missionaries, missions to the whole world and in the local church happen through the proclamation of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word. I know it's not very popular in our day. So many people want to do away with what I'm doing now. We don't live in that world anymore. You know, we need modes of entertainment and we need other media and we need... We need to act out. We need to watch. We need to do... The facts are the facts. God has proclaimed the gospel from the beginning of time, beginning with Adam forward. He has done it through the preaching of His Word. God chose the method by which His message, His mysterious truth of salvation through Christ alone would come to the world. And it's not through uh, living pictures. You say, well, we're just in a different age now. You know, Carlton, we're talking about the same thing, but we just think there's a better way to do it now. You know, they lived in an oral world where you preached and people listened. We don't live that way anymore. They didn't live in that world. No, they didn't. They lived in the high age of the Greek drama. Drama's not a new thing. There were, there were theaters in Jesus' day. If Jesus had wanted the main way for His Word to be proclaimed, for people to get up and act it out, He would have done it. If God had wanted it to be mainly to come through a television screen or even uh, uh, some movie, He would have waited to reveal the plan when those technologies were there. But He didn't. Why? Because He places a priority on the verbal preaching of God's Word. From the source of authority, which is the written word, which was written by God through his holy men. The emphasis on preaching is because of the emphasis on the Bible. The emphasis on the Bible. 
It has no need for a prop. It has no need for someone to make it more interesting. That's getting more focused on the brush again. Stop focusing there, God would say, and focus on what I've called you to do. Proclaim, preach this word, this mystery. Proclaim it, preach it until the end. And so we have missions happening in the local church through the proclamation and around the world. And what we're preaching is the unsearchable riches of Christ. So whenever you go on the street tomorrow, your whole aim in life, whatever your call and duty in your job is, is to hold up Christ and His riches, how glorious He is. By the decisions you make, by the places you go, by the people you speak with, and the words that flow from your mouth. One of the most dangerous uh, things being pushed on the church today is that you can preach the gospel without ever saying anything. And it's not true. That's not true. You cannot do that. What you can do is live a righteous life, a moralistic life that makes people think, well, he's a good person. I need to be more like him. And in doing that, you're selling them paintbrushes. You're not pointing them to the architect. You're not pointing them to the painter. Because that life that you're living has to be followed by the word of the gospel so that Christ's riches are exalted. Many people will be in hell because their Christian neighbor never opened his mouth. He just lived a good life. And that guy said, I want to be more like that guy. That's a shame. It's a shame to me. It's a shame to you. Because it's in that we are denying the sovereignty of God and laying out how He will save His people. He said, I will do it through preaching. Hold your place in Ephesians and turn back to Romans. Romans chapter 10 makes this abundantly clear. Paul again says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I present... Oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong place. That's a, I was like, that, that's the weirdest rendition of Romans 10 I've ever seen. Romans 10. Wow. How then, verse 14, shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming? And how are they to preach unless they're sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through The Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So your life won't get it done by itself. But your life must be a witness to the Gospel so that your mouth might proclaim the truth that says my life is what it is because of Christ, not because of me. When Ezra in the Old Testament, Nehemiah rebuilt the city, and one of the first things he did was put a preacher in place. Ezra stood up, placed a podium before the people, and he taught them the whole counsel of God. 
Why? Because the construction project was meaningless. The works being done around them were meaningless unless the truth of God was proclaimed. And the truth of God had to be followed up by their action. And so the marriage of this missionary work with the preaching of the message, the mystery. Okay? That's the first two steps. Everyone who is in Christ is a missionary. You, me, ordinary people. And our aim and objective is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mystery. Ephesians 2 says, look, look back at Ephesians 2. It says, remember, how, how is this designed to work? Let's look, let's look at verse 12, 2, 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we are. That's who we all are before Christ. But then look at the gospel. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. I was cut off. I had no God in this world. I did not know of Christ. I had no promise from God. I had no covenant with God. I was cut off. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I had no claim on the good grace of God, but in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. What does it mean to be brought near? Keep going in the text. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the gospel, that God is doing this great work of redemption, and we're to be proclaiming it to everyone. You say, well, that gets deep. Yeah. It gets real deep. You can't run from the deepness. You can't give the shallow in hope that the seed will sprout quickly. Paul never shortcut the preaching. He never sidestepped the truth. He didn't hide certain things from them until they professed Christ didn't give them the full weight. You can't do that. People aren't converting to Christ Unless they're coming, knowing their sinfulness, knowing God's holy and just wrath, knowing they have no hope outside of Christ, knowing the grace and goodness and mercy come only in Him, knowing that that only happens if the Spirit makes me alive, they don't come to Christ any other way. They don't come to Christ any You can't hide the truth and put forward some shallow soil that a sprout may come up. So you can then say, boy, we've done something great here. The loudest noise in the local church today in America is the sound of the side and back door closing as those who once claimed Christ leave because they've now heard something that offended them in the message of the gospel usually. The great, the great... Uh, desire of our age being to fill up the pew and do all of this on our own strength, the shallowness of our preaching, 
the willingness to deny even the preaching of the simple truth of the mystery of how Gentiles and Jews are being saved in Christ alone, to hide that, fills a church building. But then it's quickly exited. And we don't notice it because we're still bringing in more in this shallow soil. And they're wilting away as fast as they come. Revivals of past gone years have always come in the deep truths. Have always come in this revealing of the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And the work of Jesus through His Spirit. You cannot, you cannot sell the gospel. You cannot water down the gospel. No, when missionaries go to Anniston, or they go to Papua New Guinea, or they go to Honduras, or they go to Nicaragua, or they go to Uganda, or they go anywhere in the far-flung world, if they do not hold up the pure gospel of this mystery that is in Christ alone, they are fooling themselves and they are damning many to hell. All false conversion. Jesus warned in His day, Matthew 4. Mark 4. There were all these types of soil. There was the road. There was the shallow. There was the weedy. And there was the good. As the seed, the same seed, the gospel, is scattered. The same seed, the same message. This mystery is scattered. When it falls on the hard soil, it is taken away. But don't be discouraged. Because you always have those shallow soils that will spring up really quick. And you'll get excited about that. And you'll put your hope in that. And you'll talk about how great you're doing for God in that. And in five years, you'll be discouraged because they've all wilted away. They're all gone. But don't lose heart. There's more people. They'll spring up among the weeds. And they will last for a while. And then those weeds, the cares of this world, will choke them out. You'll be like Demas. And they'll leave you. And you'll be discouraged again if that's what you've placed your hope in. And then there's this good soil where the seed falls and it takes root into the depth of the richness of that soil, and it produces some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. But be careful. Don't put your hope in that soil. Don't put your hope in that soil either. Where does my hope go? My hope goes in God, who makes the seed sprout and grow. My trust is in Him that He will do His work. Secondly, it's in Him who is sovereign enough to save and plan to save by giving a method, which is preaching. So I scatter the seed. My hope is in God, and it's in the method of scattering the pure gospel. And I rejoice not in just this good soil, but I rejoice in the fact that God has been glorified in all the soil. All of it. And that joy looks like weeping. And that joy looks like discipline. And that joy looks like brokenheartedness. And that joy looks like a prisoner. And that joy comes with great joy because its hope is placed in God who is sovereign and has chosen to save the elect. Not because I'm a good witnesser. 
a good preacher. Not because my church is big and this one's small. Not because these many people were baptized or not baptized. But my joy is that God is being glorified in shallow, hard, thorny, and good soil. His manifold, colorful beauty is being displayed in all of that. Listen, if it weren't this way, we would go about looking for those, just just looking for this narrow strand, looking for this narrow strand of deep people who are searching and looking for God. That's not what we do. We preach the gospel to everyone. Why? Because God's glorified in all of it. Those saved and those lost. He's glorified in all of it. He's made more beautiful in all of it. He's displayed more perfectly in all people. And so He is not just sending us to find the elect. He's sending us to preach the gospel. That's that's the method. Ordinary people preaching the unordinary or the extraordinary or the unsearchable riches of Christ. And finally, he's saying, he's saying that God uh, is gathering His church from all the nations. From all the nations. So we see that this hidden mystery that God created all things, look at this, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You always save this to the end um, in this sermon. I've seen guys preach it the other way. I'm a little nervous of that. Because this is a difficult passage. God is making known His character to angels through us. That's what it says. That He's making known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places His manifold wisdom. This is not the only place where Paul delves in this subject. As a matter of fact, the submission of the woman to the man in the marriage relationship is said to be occurring so that the order of God might be seen and the angels might praise Him. The submission of the church to her pastors is being done so that the angels might see it in that the wisdom of God. And here he says, God is saving His redeemed And he's placing them in Christ to show how wise he is to his holy and or to his angels. So, what are we to do with this? I mean, how do we how do we make this known? I mean, how do we understand this? Well, we're left with this, and that is that God having this architectural this plan, this diagram of salvation set about making both a visible and an invisible world. I think He shows us some of who He is when we look at their world. The angels were all sinless. Right? 
right? One class of angels. A third of the angels rebelled against God and fell from glory. The rest are saved. They're called elect angels in the Bible. So we look at the angels and say, this election thing is not just for men. God has done it with the angels. But what we don't see in the angels is redemption. What we see in the angels is two categories. We see the power of darkness and the power of light. The power of God and the power of His enemy. But in the church, in the church the angels look and see that God is sovereign over all of things. The angels do not sing redemption. The angels do not sing amazing grace. You'll never read in a passage, besides the fact you don't read of them singing, but you'll never read something that looks like a hymn to us where the angels are glorifying God for redeeming them. They weren't ever lost. And those who were lost are never saved. And so the angels of heaven strain forward to see God working out this plan. He did this this way, that the church might display the glory, the beauty of that redemption to the heavenlies. Humbly we submit that the church is God's trophy. In its perfection, when it stands before Him, it will stand in the image of Christ. And all things will be made right in the church through Christ. And He puts it on display. And the angels, both good and evil, look at it. And I can hear from the Scripture even that there is a debate going back and forth. You hear it when you see Job. You remember Job? God put him forward. Satan came in among the children of God, sons of God, and he said, what did you find? He said, well, have you considered Job? Sure, I considered him, but you've given him everything. I'm sure he loves you. Take away his stuff. He won't love you anymore. Okay, you're going to have his stuff. God strips him bare. And what does he do? He praises God. And the angels, as he's being stripped bare, I see the evil ones, those following Satan in rebellion, saying, see, we told you. It's coming. He's going to curse you. Here it is. And then he says, I came from my mother naked. I'll return naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the holy angels say, that's our God at work in his people. Satan comes back. What would you find? Well, sure, he's healthy. Take his health away. You take his health away, he won't love you. Okay? You can have his health, but you can't have his life. Satan strikes him with bulls, laying in the trash dump, scraping himself for relief. His wife saying, die. Just go ahead and die. It'd be better for you to die. And he resists that and says, no. Shall I receive good from the hand of God and not also that which is evil? Bless the name of the Lord. I see in that Satan and his minions saying, we got him. 
He's scratching himself. He's miserable. He hates his life. He's going to end it all. He's going to curse God. And when those words of praise come forward, God's glory beams brightly. And the holy angels say, Our God wins. Our God is sovereign. Our God is more powerful than any of you. And that little story in the Bible is projected by millions of times over the generations. And people stop looking at the brush and they start looking at the painting. I think of Adoniram Judson. Many of you know his story. Adoniram Judson came to Christ from an agnostic, atheistic kind of background. He'd been raised in the church. He had denied the faith. He had gone to college. He had been educated. And he had fallen into the hands of a non-believer, a very intelligent, by his admission, the most intelligent man he'd ever met. And he worked on Adoniram, and he moved away. He moved away from the truth. Distanced himself. He wasn't yet fully understanding this mystery. By a work of God, though, God saved him miraculously through the trials that he went through, the listening as his friend died in the next room and reading God's Word. His next step was to get married, but before he get, or was to go on to Mitchfield. Before he went on to Mitchfield, he needed to be married. So he proposes to a man and takes his new wife and goes to Burma. He goes to serve God in a lost people. He preaches the gospel with very little to no result. He sowed the seed. His first wife died. His second wife died. And he died. In his long life, very few people ever believed. Less than a church full. And his whole life, I imagine that the forces of Satan taunted and mocked. Taunted and mocked. This is our dominion. This is the way we treat your servants. And as the angels watched, God molded his glory, lifted it high. His glory, not Adonai's, but his. And as he projected that martyr, And that one who died for the cause of Christ, he picked him up. He showed forth the glory of his wisdom. And then, in his death, after his death, thousands come to Christ. And again, the taunt goes back to the other side of our God is sovereign. Fear him. He is sovereign. I'm telling you, The greatest, most strategic institution in the world is the church. Because it is the plan of God for revealing His wisdom through the preaching of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, by ordinary, everyday people. So that God is glorified. So that God is glorified. And we are decreased. Let's pray. Father, as we... Close and...